Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Goslin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. With so many new distilleries coming online across Scotland, it's sometimes hard to keep track. But when Angus McRailed dropped the news at the start of April about his plans for Kaith Distillery, it felt like time to sit up and pay attention. Angus has teamed up with partners Johnny McMillan and Aaron Chan to bring their vision of a new distillery that produces an old-style, traditional Highland style of whisky to life. In their own words, efficiency is the enemy of character when it comes to their mission. I caught up with both Angus and Johnny to find out more, starting with where the name of the distillery itself came from. We wanted a name that wasn't wasn't sort of Gaelic was the first thing, and maybe something that didn't quite reflect place as well. I guess we liked the idea of something that was focused on the, the project that Whiskey were trying to make. Um, so I started looking at sort of Scots words, um, and there's a, a word which is in Robert Burns' poem, featured in the poem Halloween, uh, Kaith, um, and I had an old Scots dictionary, and I looked up this word, and it, it, yeah, it kind of means to, to prove a point or to become known. Um, so I guess it speaks to what we're trying to do. Yeah, so yeah. Exactly. apart from being geographically, you know, we wanted to be a Highland malt whiskey. Um, you know, wh- where we are, the site we are, it's it, it's not the biggest uh, sort of meaning behind what we're doing. You know, a, a lot of it is more just conceptual and kind of ideological, like trying to prove a point and trying to, um, you know, put money where our mouth is and what we've been talking about for a number of years now about old style methods and flavours. Yeah, it does seem to have a kind of an, an ideological focus. This is this is a real mission that you, you guys are on. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, uh, it's pretty ruthless, uh, sort of strong conceptual project, really, because you know we both of us love old style whiskey. That flavour profile, which is essentially uh, you know tropical fruit, waxiness of flavour, waxiness of texture, fatness, full bodied very distillate driven whiskies, whiskies which are so much about the distillate and the soul, uh, not just the wood, although wood is also always important, but, um, you know, looking around at contemporary production and just never really finding something that fully expressed that style or ticked all those boxes and sort of just coming to the conclusion, as we did on Car Journey back in 2014, that, well, do we fancy having a crack at doing that ourselves and trying to recreate that character or that style again and um yeah and here we are 10 years later <laughs> well yeah i was going to ask kind of where, where, where the journey started so does it go back that long that you've been talking this over mulling it over and kicking ideas about yeah i, th- I think it was yeah 2014 we were driving back from tim forbes uh, birthday party in london uh, you know it's a long drive um and i think angus said in a fairly offhand way have you ever thought about having your own distillery? Um, uh, which which was something I had given some thought to. And we, we just kind of threw some ideas about about how it would work. But, you know, we had no idea what, um, you know, a structural engineer was or a quantity surveyor. I had absolutely no idea how to finance that kind of thing. And really, the, the, the learning curve has been steep and a lot of fun. Um, but I don't I don't think we had any idea yeah, how much effort we could take. That's the thing that sets us this project apart in many ways is that it was, you know, we didn't have 
like a lot of new distilleries have, we didn't have backers with deep pockets uh, to start with. We didn't have land. Uh, we didn't have, you know, our own, you know, our own money or very long, uh, illustrious careers in the whiskey industry behind us. We just had, a, a, you know, I would say quite a particular area of experience and passion in sort of old style historic flavors of whiskey. And we had a, a quite clear vision and we've ended up with the project finally coming to reality with it being backed by, you know, it's not venture capital. It's not, you know, just, uh, you know, you know, a bunch of big, quite faceless corporate investors. It's all whiskey lovers. And it's, it's a group, you know, a group of uh, people that really share the vision and share that same, you know, bug of geekery and enthusiasm. And I think that, is something that you know sets us apart a little bit, and something we're really pleased about the project. Um, but yeah, absolutely, it's uh, it's taken a long time to get there, and it's been a huge learning curve, as Johnny says. Uh, but in doing that, I think you know we've we've overcome a lot of setbacks, and it's also been a hugely challenging decade in which to try and do something like this. You know, Brexit, Scottish independence, uh, COVID, all these things. Every every around every corner, there was another mountain to navigate mm. around and we and we finally arrived um actually building at the highest inflation in whatever it is 80 yeah. years or something so yeah fantastic timing yeah i was going to ask kind of what stage you're at obviously you, you've announced that this is happening but in terms of kind of physical build out or you know equipment uh, you have a location but where are you in terms of actually uh, making this distillery work so, so we're hopeful we can probably start on site in the next couple of months. Um, the site itself, um, there's already two two barns there with with good steel frames. So, you know, we, we don't have to actually build the frames as such. Um, so, the slightly smaller one will be the distillery, slightly larger one will be the warehouse. Uh, so, it's a case of just recladding those, and hopefully, we can we can start kind of by summer. Um, and then the stills have been ordered. That was a, a very exciting day going shopping for pot stills. So we've put the deposit down on those, um, and we're kind of hopeful. Uh, the, the the plant the plant has been a kind of challenging part getting that to work within within budget. You know, as Angus says, the whole point in this project is to make incredible whiskey as good as we possibly can, and there's just you can't really cut corners um, on a lot of the plant. So, you know, thing, things like pot stills, you know, we need good Scottish built pot stills. Um, and, you know, as, as you know, we're, we're going to direct fire. So that, that takes quite a lot of engineering work, which is quite expensive. Um, so that's, that's kind of been a challenge, but we, we're pretty confident we can come in on budget. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, say the build will be finished this year and then the, the kit will go in and be commissioned next year. So we're, we're hopeful of being in production next summer. And how do you go about designing a distillery to create this style of whiskey that, that you're in, in search of, this this old Highland style? How, how do you go about, uh, you know, designing the whiskey and finding the equipment to create that style if it's something that hasn't been created for, for such a long time? Well, I think the, the it is kind of like retro engineering from... You know, taking the the liquid in the glass of the most sort of inspirational whiskies to us. So, the number of times sitting with drams of liquid like sixties Bemore is the one we always tend to go to. That the three of us in the project probably idolise the most. 
and just thinking about it, talking about it, understanding it, reading about what was going on, then talking to anyone that had any kind of connection to what was uh, you know going on in production in those days. But the thing about Scotch whiskey is that the actual process of making it is is, is pretty straightforward. The equipment used to make it hasn't changed dramatically, and there's quite a lot. You know, there's, there's plenty evidence of um, what equipment was being used and the differences between then and now in the era we're looking at, sort of 50s, 60s, 40s, that kind of time period. So it's not, for most of it, a huge change from uh, what other distilleries are presently using except in i would say areas of distillation where there was quite a as johnny mentioned quite a lot of complex engineering work around things like a direct wood-fired wash still but it's just going through and almost like box checking so you're saying right well with mashing we need to basically have uh we want a clear wart so we want to do a one-ton mash and we want to do a you know very slow mash want to uh, have rakes just do one turn all these so you're just going through ticking boxes and say all right that's our process for mashing fermentation we want to achieve a standard a certain amount of time so we need a certain volume of wooden washbacks and then distillation we need to uh, we know we want to direct fire we know we want to condense through worms so you know then it becomes more about well how do we achieve that with things like cooling and uh, you know looking at the site and what the site can deliver for you in terms of uh, how much water have we got i mean it's really it, so much of it is an engineering solution to deliver your simple but very deliberate choices about production. It's really about choices and quite and sort of intellectually deliberate decision making about production. And you know, every, uh, you know, every uh, every distillery you could produce multiple styles based on your decisions. So it's really just a accumula- accumulation of decisions that, that you that we have to make. Yeah, uh, I think it's much more about methodology than than plant. I guess you know we, you need key bits of plant you know direct fire still being the big one i think worm tubs were also a fairly obvious choice for us you know you taste the great distillates they always have real weight to them um but yeah i mean we're, we're, we're very lucky we've got uh, an amazing team of engineers and consultants um who know much more than we do um so yeah we're, we're, we feel like we're in a, a pretty we're, we're confident that we'll, we'll be able to make something amazing yeah, and then there's also things like ingredients and the research that goes into, um, you know, making sure we've got a sustainable supply of the right type of barley. We want uh, heritage and brewing varietals, which essentially deliver much higher, um, you know, ratios of protein, for example, rather than just, you know, very high starch distilling varieties, which are designed to just convert into the maximum amount of sugar to get high alcohol yields. We want ones that deliver a more complex wash which will, um, you know, at the end of fermentation, be primed to distill into the type of distillate that that we want with the right precursors that eventually mature into the spirit, we, you know, the whiskey we want. So it, it's just, it's going back to, you know, right back to the beginning with everything and uh, just thinking about every single part of the process. And, thing, you know, and then around fermentation, it's, you know, looking into, like, what sort of yeast do we want? We want brewer's yeast, where are we going to get that from? We need to go to a brewery. We need to think about how that yeast is taken from the brewery, how it's transported, how it's you know handled, what condition it's in when it's pitched, what that's going to do to the fermentation. And there's obviously an element of that which you know 
there's going to be a fair amount of experimenting and playing around in our first year of production to find out uh, what exact ratio and recipe works for us. But we've planned all that in, we've factored all that in. There's, you know, I think a big part of what we bring to this is our willingness to not compromise in the areas where we can't afford to compromise and our judgment. You know, we, we're all very keenly aware of the benchmark we've set ourselves and the, the yardstick of quality that we want to get past. And I think we're all pretty honest and pretty good at, you know, sticking our noses in a glass and saying, yes, that's right. Or yes, that's not good enough. We need to change something. So that's very much what the first couple of years will be about. Because, I mean, it's, it's not really about experimentation, is it? It's about consistency, finding the, the spirit that you want to create and, and just going on to create that, right? Yeah, we want to achieve a house style that's very distinctive, very clear and very charismatic, I would say. And I think the, there's a certain tension, I think, in whiskey making between uh, the time at which your distillate starts to reveal uh, its true character and you know how much can you rush that with things like smaller casks in the first couple of years versus how much of that is really actually just revealed after three four five ten years in just more standard you know traditional barrels and hogsheads and it's trying you know hoping to get to a point where you've got enough confidence to to lock in more firmly on a, on a particular type of recipe and a particular method so we're not concerned that we won't be able to create something of the kind of beauty and quality that we're after i suppose our um our main area of uh i wouldn't say concern but just where we're going to have to put as, as much time and focus in the early years is what's the exact route what's the the route and the combination of all these different tweaks and very subtle changes that we can make that's going to deliver the very best and the the the, the profile that we really really want i guess that there's sort of production parameters that we're, we're going to stick to you know as angus says we, we need to use heritage barley i think the a lot of flavor that we want is coming from these protein rich barleys but within heritage barley there there's a huge range of things that are you know available in the market or things that we could grow ourselves um and then equally, we need to use brewer's yeast. But again, there, there's quite a lot of different types of, of brewer's yeast and there's different ways you can treat it. And then fermentation time as well. You know, we we've, we've, there's some anecdotal evidence of things like two-week fermentations in the 60s, but a lot of distillers, you know, will have used two days in the 60s. So I, I guess there's, there, there's, there's playing about with these parameters. And, you know, we know we want to achieve this big tropical fruit waxy character, you know, 1969 long more or 64 but more um and then there's also you know thing i guess we've we've got we've got working theories um about you know how fast you run the stills or what cut points to take but all these things i feel we can you know as angus says we can we can aim for this house style but within that i think there's there's pleasing variation and you know we we, we don't want a whiskey that tastes exactly the same with every with every vintage you want you want some slight variation yeah, I, th I think that was one of the great things that people really love about, I mean, Old Style Lafroig is another classic example, which is that, and it's something that when I think of what, you know, I want to have achieved with Kai, that I want us to have reached in 10 years, is to create a whiskey which people can guess easily. <laughs> people can put their nose in a glass and go, oh, 
Zach Kythe. That to me is is something that things like Old Lafroig possess, where you give people that know these whiskies a glass and they go, that is old style Lafroig and it's beautiful. But they are very, you know, subtly different from you know, dram to dram, from year to year, from cask to cask. There's a, I think old style whiskies possessed a lovely undulating variation across um eras and even you know blocks of months of production and i think a lot of that is because these were distilleries run much more by hand far less by automation so there was a lot more personal preference of the human beings that were actually running them day to day going into the you know being manifest in the process which ends up being manifest in the whiskey later on but underneath all that there's still a core distillery identity because the ingredients being used processes and the equipment and the way they're being run it all holistically adds up to something which just cannot do anything but create a charismatic type of product so these are the sort of practices processes phenomena that inspire us and we really want to try and uh, not even recreate we're being inspired by them but we want to use them to create something which is you know new as well and I think the other thing about Kai that's very important is it's it's a commercial size distillery. We never wanted to make something really small and boutique and, and crafty. We wanted something, you know, it's a, it's a one-ton mash distillery. If we really pushed it, we'd probably make about 200,000 litres, but we're aiming for about 50,000. And we've our business plan and our model and everything, it all factors off this 50,000 litre production capacity because what we're essentially trying to do is a business model which chucks yield out of the window, gets rid of yield efficiency, all those things, and just focuses in on quality equals value. And that is what ultimately delivers a sustainable business, which is you know good for us. This is a lifelong project for us. It's wanted to be our careers. It's good for our shareholders. And hopefully it's something that's really good for you know whiskey enthusiasts and people that love actually tasting beautiful drams. I think there's, there's already been a lot of excitement about it when people saw the, the, the press release coming out and got a chance to look at the setup. But I suppose the, the wood-fired wash still is at the heart of it, and that's really what's captured attention. So, you know, and that's what's going to set you, set you apart, I suppose. So tell us about the wood, wood-fired wash still and the, the challenges of working with something like that, uh, but, but why you've, you've gone for it. Well, I think when we had our first sort of proper sit down meeting with the engineers, they just said, "Look, I don't, I don't think would, I don't think this is really possible to do." Um, to which answer was, "Well, this is kind of the key part of the project, so we're going to make it work." Um, it, yeah, it, it is challenging. So I think the last ones in Scotland were two thousand and two, uh, which I think was Glendronach. Um, so it hasn't, hasn't been done. It was Ardmore. I can't remember whether it was Glendronach or Glass. Was it Ardmore that was certainly they, they both stopped very close to each other? But then, of course, these were coal direct fired. Ar- Ardmore had the massive fire, certainly, um, as, we're, as we're reminded occasionally. Um, but yeah, like, like I say, we've got really amazing process engineers, um, Hart, PS, down in, down in Manchester. Um, and their sort of chief engineer, Mike Billington, is just a. A genius, really, um, and enjoys a good challenge. So we, we've kind of taken the the sort of cognac approach to the, the explosive issue. So um, the atmosphere in the still house is technically an explosive atmosphere. So you, you can't have the still fed from inside the still house. 
So the kiln room will essentially be partitioned off from the still house. So you'll access the kiln more or less from outside. You'll come outside, there'll be a roller shutter door and access the, the kiln. So the, the fire, if you like, is in a completely different room. There's no airflow between the kiln, the kiln door and the still house. Um, it's, it's, it's completely separate. So um, that that will kind of get around the the desire zoning. Um, and we, we've, we've been speaking a little bit to uh, Nakamura-san from uh, Shizuoka Distillery in Japan. They're, they're, they're wood-fired as well. They, they've got a steam coil inside as well, which we're not, we're not going to have. Um, but, yes, it sounds like it's going to be quite a challenge to to operate the still. Which, um, We've also yeah. got good um, consultants like um, Gordon Grant, who used to work at Ardmore Distillery. So he's had years of experience running directly coal-fired stills there and you know he doesn't mince his words it is a much more labor intensive and uh you know it is potentially dangerous and you've got i think, I think gordon used the word hellish did he not I mean, was... uh, uh, i'm trying to <laughs> yeah he definitely in his thick aberdonian brogue uh referred to direct fires as dirty work but yeah. uh, I think that it will be probably the biggest challenge in terms of the technical, physical, we have to get this right aspect of production. But within that, it also means we can, you know, if we get that right and we work really hard at it, it's also something we can legitimately say, you know, we really are making whiskey with skill by hand uh, in this sense. And as has been, I think, proven pretty conclusively over the decades, it does make a damn big difference to the fatness and character of the distillate you make especially when done in combination with the um with worm tub condensing and then on top of that with the spirit still being electrically heated uh, in a manner which mimics um the character of direct firing as well that's just we think the right balance and a nice little addition which will help to emphasize this character of fatness and weight in the distillate as well and on top of that, I think the other component of this is, and, and the reason we ended opting for wood over coal, of course, is the environmental impact. You know, a, a distillery, because we're doing this with a distillation, a distillery of a similar scale and spec using a kerosene boiler and driving steam stills would be, uh, I think, 94% higher emissions than than we are. We're making a huge emission saving. And as time goes on and we can build in more renewable supply to our electricity requirements will become greener and, and further sustainable. And, you know, that's something that genuinely matters to us. We care a great deal about it. We all think a lot about it. And we're very conscious that going into the future, uh, businesses need to have legitimate uh, sustainability at their heart. And, you know, we don't just want to be greenwashing. So, um yeah, that was. I think another interesting part about the, the the direct fire still is in in conjunction with the brewer's yeast, and it's kind of like, like a working theory, really. So, um, if we're using brewer's yeast instead of distiller's yeast, that's that's much less effective eating sugar. And one of the key things is that brewer's yeast doesn't eat maltotriose, which distiller's yeast does does consume. So our wash, when it's finished fermenting, should have more sugar in it than a kind of modern wash, if you like. So when that is combined with direct fire, still the main difference with direct fire still is temperature, you know, where a steam coil still reaches about 110, 120 degrees. 
uh, our wash still probably goes about 400 degrees. So you're going to get that Maillard reaction, but there is more sugar in the wash to, to give you the Maillard reaction. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of working theory that's that's going to contribute to flavour and, and mouthfeel. Um, that, that's the, the theory anyway. They'll also deliver that kind of, going back to what we were talking about, this sort of undulating character throughout the year when combined with natural variances in cooling across the seasons, which worm tubs would be more susceptible to, uh, combined with just the absolutely natural variation you'll almost get from distillation to distillation through having, I suppose, quite a hands-on labour-intensive and variable uh, type of heating of the wash still particularly. Um, over the course of a year, we think that builds in quite a lot of natural complexity and uh, subtle variation of our distillery character, which, you know, looking ahead to the sort of products that whiskey lovers like these days, you know, everyone loves to obsess over single casks and, you know, the, I think of Springbank in particular when I think of stuff like this, the talking about, wow, the 94s are definitely better than the 93s or, God, the 95s are just, you can tell that character is so vivid and it's gone by the 99s, you know, what happened? You know? And that kind of uh, geekiness and passion, I think this is the sort of production process that really helps build in the right kind of personality combined with the right variation that, that feeds into that kind of culture and that kind of love. And the emphasis is clearly very much on the the, the spirit that you create, uh, possibly more than maturation. But what are your thoughts about maturation? You you you, you want to let the, the spirit sing, uh, obviously. Wood, wood is still of huge importance, but what we want the wood to do is to sculpt and mature the distillate, not flavour it and not dominate it. Um, you know, we want the casks to be something which just nurture our spirit to maturity and kind of and harmony and balance. But we don't want whiskey that tastes of splinters, you know. And you know, our view is that we'll fill probably quite a variety in the early years in order to help us best understand how our spirit responds to different uh, wood types and different levels of uh, wood activity. But uh, longer term we're likely to align around a wood policy dominated by second fill barrels refill hogsheads uh, complemented we hope by some very carefully chosen sherry casks which is something yeah no no red wine or virgin oak or any of that crap yeah. frankly yeah no absolutely not so to what extent do you see yourselves as kind of outliers within the industry angus obviously you've been vocal in your uh, criticism of the, the wider industry so you know is are you outliers are you renegades how would you describe yourselves well i think we are outliers to an extent but not in the kind of wanky brew dog way i would hope um, <laughs> we very much view ourselves as part of uh a, i think a, quite a refreshing movement in scotch whiskey which is reflected i think around the world as well there's just more and more new distilleries and some people view that saying, oh, there's just too many, it's becoming cluttered and I can't follow them all. There may be some truth in that, but these people are, tend to be very small uh, in scale, like you know, 50,000 litres, you know, we're projecting it's minuscule compared to one single upgrade of any of Diageo's major blending distilleries will probably dwarf all the new distillery outputs, you know, combined. So uh, 
I think the the news is positive in that because there's lots more individual you know companies led by people with you know clear visions and opinions often very different from ours but that's a good thing because it's starting to build real diversity back into scotch whiskey and there's lots of people looking at production in different ways starting to think less about yield and more about flavor and character and just generally doing interesting fun things with production and that's you know we don't see ourselves as outside that movement but very much part of it and you know when you're a bunch of small people and you know on one side and you've got this huge sort of quite monolithic industry on the other dominated by only a few companies then you know it's important for there to be you know quite a lot of you and to work together and uh, johnny always says a rising tide floats many boats and you know, i agree with that and one thing that's been really heartening since we announced and even before that you know talking to a few select friends and confidants about this project is that everyone's incredibly supportive you know, we have nothing but kind comments and supportive comments from other people in the industry and other people that are making whiskey and have started distilleries in recent years. They've been very open with advice and said, you know, if you want to ask questions, you know, where ears are open, doors are open. And that's that's the great thing about whiskey is it is a community, it is a, a you know, a, a culture that's generally very friendly and open. And, uh, you know, we don't want to see ourselves as, outliers of that we won't see ourselves very much part of that uh, we're just doing a thing which is very specifically geared around quite an ideological approach uh, and an old style whiskey kind of approach uh, I, I, but, guess, I guess it's interesting in that you know a lot of the new distilleries and again talking about kind of smaller independent distilleries they are they are kind of um often by accident kind of coming back to a slightly older style with a focus on older barley varieties or just different barley varieties um, and different yeasts, you know? Um, and I think there's a lot of new distilleries doing really interesting things. And, you know, I totally agree with Angus. I think uh, we want to be part of that, not kind of saying, you know, hey, we're totally different to this. I think I think the difference with Kaith is that, um, you know, we, we are three people who have tasted and really fallen in love with old style whiskey in a way that I think most people who are producing whiskey haven't had the good fortune to be able to taste a vast array of 1960s Bamores and the Freugs. Um, and, you know, we, we have this clear destination in mind where I think a lot of the other distilleries are still making fantastic whiskey, but um, I guess, you know, they're, they're looking maybe more at maturation for their, their flavour than we are. Um, or other, you know, quirks in, in production, but we're very focused on this this old style um, whiskey. Yeah, I don't think there's any other distillery in the world, maybe, where all three of the founders have all tasted 1967 Samaroli Laphroaig and sort of have it in their head as like a subconscious benchmark of must recreate this. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a nice benchmark to have if you've, if you've had the opportunity to taste it. I can recommend it. Uh, chance yeah well you need to give me a sample angus uh your your third uh your your other third partner uh aaron from hong kong you know is he clear that there's a big market for this old style whiskey in asia in that part of the world is is that is that a factor for you yeah absolutely i mean the the asian sort of whiskey community is one of the ones that's most strongly embraced, I think, and been and been kind of enchanted by old bottles in recent years. 
you go out there to festivals and it's a really interesting, quite young crowd asking very detailed, very interesting questions. The festivals are a real mix of contemporary bottlers, um, bars with loads of old style whiskies on the table. There's lots of people really tasting and educating themselves about historic flavors versus uh, contemporary flavors. It is absolutely a key market for the future of Scotch whiskey. And I think anyone that thinks otherwise is staffed, you know, and also Aaron's been such a, a godsend for this project, really. Like Johnny and I were doing this ourselves for a number of years. And uh, there was a sort of previous version of, of this project, which was a bit more ambitious. And, you know, we didn't get that off the ground. And it was Aaron that came on board really early on as kind of a an interested investor and got more and more involved. And he really, with his background, you know, he, he used to be an investment banker. He's got a really strong um financial and uh, sort of numbers background and very good with that side of the business and has been a real asset to uh, to this project and brought something to the table which Johnny and I kind of lacked I would say um, so he was foundational in in helping us change direction revise it and get it into a position where we could really move forward with it and um, he's also I think been one of the people at the forefront of developing and sort of educating people in Asia around old style whiskey. You know, he was good friends uh, with Emmanuel Drawn in Singapore. Emmanuel famously has the old Alliance bar there. And Aaron opened Club Ching in Hong Kong, which is one of the sort of leading whiskey bars in Hong Kong. And he does independent bottling out there as well. So he's really uh, led the way in terms of, I think, uh, you know, proliferating uh, information and appreciation about these kind of whiskies out there. So he's been, you know, a great asset to this project. And it, I think it, it really helps give it that little bit of a, a nice global um, flourish to it, which is, which is great. And do you feel both of you, I suppose, having worked in the industry, been involved in some form or another in the whiskey world for, for some time, is this what it's kind of all led up to? It's all focused on this. This is this is your life's work taking place uh, in, in front of our eyes now. I mean, I I, I love working for Berry Brothers. You know, I, I'm part of the, my love of whiskey is my love of history as well. And you know, Berry Brothers has got such a long, rich history. You know, going for three hundred years. Um, so I absolutely I love I do love Berry Brothers and part of me wishes I could clone myself and stay and see the casks that I'm laying down at Berry Brothers continue to mature. However, I think I don't want there to be two of you, Johnny. I couldn't handle that. <laughs> no, neither could I. Trust me. Um, but I think you know, with independent bottling, you're never doing the full creative process. And I guess I like the idea for Kite as much about having a proper as much it's as much about having a grand cru malt whiskey that people recognize as one of the best whiskies produced also having a brand that just goes against all the marketing just the vacuous tripe that a lot of big brands put out you know we want to have a brand that is is truthful and honest and you know speaks to whiskey nerds not just kind of like flowing marketing nonsense um, so yes, but, but part of the appeal for me, if I'm honest, is having you know making amazing whiskey, but also having the sort of brand that whiskey nerds want to see. 
Yeah, I mean, I realized quite early on when I was writing a lot about this sort of stuff, saying, you know, old style whiskey tastes very different and often better. There's got to be a reason, you know, why is that? And and just generally challenging this industry narrative and consensus around, oh, Scotch whiskey has been the same thing for, for decades, which is just absolute demonstrable bollocks. And, but it just got to a point where I realized, I realized, you know, how can I just, I don't want to be that person carping from the sidelines or just criticizing because at heart, you know, what I really love most is, is being creative and doing creative things. And the thought of creating my own whiskey or, you know, being part of a team creating something new, that's really what motivates me and drives me. And, and the challenge of creating something that measures up in, in character and quality to those great whiskies and to be able to kind of prove a concept that, you know, for me is, is a very, you know, it's as good as any uh, ambition for a life's profession to, to have. So, um, and as Johnny says, I, I love doing indie bottling as well. And there's a different kind of creativity that goes along with that. And I, I love doing what I do with decadent drinks and, um, you know, not planning to stop that anytime soon, but, uh, you know, I like the idea of creating whiskey as, as well as bottling whiskey, as well as writing about whiskey and been able to achieve something of note within these various fields. I think that's, that's, that, that probably sums up my kind of ambitions for my future profession. Very well summed up. Yeah, it's quite an ambition to have and lovely to see it happening. When can we expect to see Kaith whiskey uh, in our glasses? Well, we're not going to bottle it until we are, are happy with it. But we think that, you know, around about the kind of time it starts to turn comfortably five, six years old, we might, you know, depending on what the casks are telling us, depending on what the distillate's telling us, we'll start to think about putting together a bottling then. We might do something earlier if we've got something really incredible and we're desperate for people to try it. But similarly, you know, we've we've put a lot of contingency into our modeling and into our planning. There's a master spreadsheet, which is a work of art, uh, which I, which still sort of frightens me when I look at it, but um, which Aaron has done, uh, you know, masterful work on, which, uh, you know, factors in all these things. And so we're not going to rush is the short answer. We do not want to just, you know, force out a whiskey that, we're not confident in because everyone always buys the first one, but selling the second, the third and the, you know, the 10th and, and way beyond and building the brand that has got to be done off the back of quality. That's what this, that's what the heart of this business plan and what's going to make it, you know, financially viable into the future is, is the quality aspect. So, yeah. I, think that, I, think, I would, I would definitely quote Francis Cuthbert and just say when it's ready. Yeah. As as that. <laughs> that was his approach and it worked quite well. Um, but yeah, as I think it says, I, I feel that there's some amazing whiskies historically bottled at five or eight years old. Um, and I would love where, you know, most new distilleries release something that's very wood driven, that's matured in, you know, two sherry octaves before being put into PX octave and then finished in virgin oak in a microwave. I would like to release something that's, you know, five years in a, in a refill cask that's it's very different to what people are expecting, but just distillate driven, thick, fruity, waxy, whether we'll have that at five eight or ten i don't i don't know but we, we want to be proud of our first bottling as anyone that knows me will attest uh and i'm probably fed up hearing me 
waffling on at length over the years about how much I just absolutely adore many of the old five-year-old hundred-proof Glen Grant bottlings, often by companies like Gordon McPhail, Peter Thompson from the 60s, 50s. These are just like fruity petrol in a glass. They're incredible, and they absolutely give the lie to this idea that you need wood. The thing about amazing distillate is that it doesn't need a lot of wood. Boring distillate needs wood because it has nothing else. But if you've got amazing distillate, it needs to be rounded out and you know sculpted and slapped on the arse a little bit. But it doesn't need a lot of add- additive wood flavour. So it can be incredible at five. And like you know, Glen Grant is such a wonderful example because Glen Grant is an astonishing distillate that can be, you know, you know, the old style Glen Grant could be astonishing at five. And it could sit in a massive sherry butt for 60 years and still be exquisite. And that kind of adaptability and beauty is, is really something we're after. So I hope that one day I'll be able to slam a bottle of Kaith 100 proof five-year-old on the table that's very pale and absolutely fruit bomb delicious. So I suppose, yeah, watch this space and maybe in about eight years or so, we'll be able to pop the cork on something. Fantastic. Look forward to it and uh, wish you all the best for your venture. Great to catch up. Johnny and Angus, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having us. You'll be able to read more about Angus, Johnny and Aaron's project in the June issue of Unfiltered, the magazine for members of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. Find out more about who we are and what we're all about by visiting smws.com. That's it for this episode of Whiskey Talk. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.